today. And uh, if you're new or joining us or kind of getting back in the loop, uh, we just started a series on First Peter. And uh, we are going through the theme drifters. And that's sort of the idea that because we love Jesus, there are going to be times that we're going to be scattered, that we're going to be persecuted, that we're going to go through trials, and it's not going to feel like we're at home, that we're at a different place. So this series really is a series on how to have a durable faith whenever you're going through uh, any sort of stress or trial or pressure or persecution. And uh, to recap, uh, we, Peter is going to tell us not only how to act uh, in the midst of our trials that we face, he's going to tell us how to think about our trials. So we talked about that last week, and we said that the reason that it's important that uh, you and I focus on not only the actions that we take, but the perspective that we have on our trials is because sometimes those trials uh, don't get better. The, the obstacles that we that, that are in our way, that the pressures that we face, the stress that we're going through, they're not actually going to get better. Sometimes they will, and sometimes they won't. And so what we see, especially in the early church, is that that's their, that was their scenario. Is the persecution got worse, it didn't get better, and yet at the same time, they thrived and flourished. Well, how did they do that? Well, part of it had to do with the actions that they took, but it also had to do with the way their perspective on their suffering and stuff. So if you remember last week, we recapped, and, uh, or, or yeah, this is, uh, this is the verse that I was anchoring this in, 1 Peter 4.12, it says this. It says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. So this idea that when you and I suffer, when you and I go through uh, different trials, it's really easy for us to think, man, this is really strange, it shouldn't be happening, and we can get lost in that. And so Peter actually tells us uh, how to think. He starts off his book saying, you need to have this perspective uh, on your trials and your faith. And so we talked about, if you remember last week, we talked about the idea that Peter starts out his book uh, blessing God for all the blessings and the inheritance that we're going to receive in Christ. We talked about the idea that the blessings in Jesus far outweigh the burdens in Jesus. And that if you and I are going to thrive in that under pressure, that we need to hold on to the fact that there's something better on the other end of that suffering that overtakes the pain that we feel, that makes going through the suffering worth it. So that was last week. This week, we're going to focus on something else. Peter is going to share with us specifically how to have joy in the worst of moments. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, joy kind of reminds me of the Alberta weather. It's quick to change, isn't it? It seems like in, just a, if you're having a joyful day, something will come along five minutes later and change that. It really just doesn't feel that steadfast. It feels like joy can be temporary, that it can be... Uh, fickle and fleeting in the moment. It's up and down and all around, and when it comes to the pressures that we face in our life, it feels like those things can steal our joy. Let me make a promise to you that there is no shortage of things that can take your joy. Probably the two main thieves of joy that I see in our lives are pain and loss. 
And they have a way of sucking joy out of us, don't they? There are things that can suck our joy. Also, on top of that, maybe that guy at work that we don't like getting around along with, that girl at work that we don't like going around, getting along with. Maybe there's a doctor's note. Do you have set, like, do you have all these dreams and aspirations? And then you get a phone call about your health and it just derails you. Life was going well, all of a sudden, maybe there's relational issues, and all of a sudden, the circumstances change, and that joy can get sucked out of your life. What if I told you, though, that it is possible for you and I to go through the worst things in life, the most atrocious uh, circumstances, the most vile thing, the most painful thing, and come out of it the other end and still have joy, not at the other end of it, but during it. That you can have joy in the worst moments. That you can have a laugh so hard that you can cry. You can still enjoy life. You can still smile and feel, and, and you have that, that joy in your heart produced by the Spirit as it causes you to see the beauty of Christ. You can have this limited, this life-defining transformation reservoir waiting to be tapped into, not at the end of all the stuff that you're going through, but during the stuff that you're going through. That's what our passage is going to look at this morning. And uh, I'm going to make two quick observations about the text that we're looking at, and then I'm going to draw from you for you a way for you to feel joy in the worst possible moment. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up. We're going to look right away. And the first observation that I'm going to make right out of the text is when you are suffering, when you are going through a trial or stress, or whatever, the observation that the text that I'm going to make of this text is this is that you must remember that out of all Christians, you are highly favored. <coughs> Look at the text with me this morning. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Well, who is he talking about? Any takers? Who is he talking about? Jesus. Thank you, device. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Christians who are much like you and I. These Christians are a little bit different than you and I, though, in one regard. Okay? And this has never happened in church history, and it probably will never happen in church history ever again. And that is, is this church, this is really weird, I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this is an era in church history where you would have had some believers on this side who would have physically witnessed Jesus and all the things that had happened, and then you would have had a bunch of believers over here who have never seen Jesus before and yet still believe in him. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Yeah. I want you to think about that dynamic for a minute, because you and I, we live in a, we live in a church era where none of us have physically witnessed Jesus. But this church would have been in an era where they could have. They didn't, but they could have. Okay? Think about how weird that would be over there, that uh, you're kind of sitting there, and uh, I'm going to pick on Faith and Dale for a minute. Let's say that Faith and Dave both come to church, and they're both believers, but 
faith was a witness to everything that Jesus did, but Dale never, Dale never saw it. Wouldn't that be a weird power dynamic in the relationship when you came to Bible studies? You were like, well, actually, I was there. This is what Jesus really, right? you know, all that kind of thing. That's sort of the dynamic that's happening in the entire church around this time. These specific believers, though, the ones that Peter is addressed to, likely probably wouldn't have seen Jesus. Right? They're hundreds, hundreds of kilometers away from Jesus the stories of Jesus. They're in a different era, right? They're 30 years after the fact. But this, in this letter, yet, Peter would have been the one that saw it. So it's very interesting because Peter's, I, Peter witnesses Jesus and all the things he believes, and yet you have a bunch of believers over here that don't. And he's saying to them, though, though you've never seen him, though you've never seen what I saw, and touched what I touched, and heard what I heard, you still love him. And though you don't see him now, you still believe him. You put all your affections in someone that you can't see. And I think what he's trying to get at is that when you are, when you have never seen Jesus before, you are highly blessed. You might remember uh, the story of the resurrection of Jesus. You know the story? So Jesus rises from the dead and he appears to the disciples and they're all there except one who was the one that wasn't there? Thomas, right? And the disciples go to Thomas and they say, we've seen Jesus. But what does Thomas say? Hey, unless I touch him, unless I physically see him, uh, I'm not going to believe. And maybe that's true of you too that you're in the midst of the suffering and you're in the midst of a trial and you know that Jesus is risen from the dead but there's something in you that goes just I just wish Jesus would show up and if Jesus would show up everything would be okay but until he does I won't trust him I won't believe him but do you remember what happens in the story what happens in the story Jesus shows up <laughs> right Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and though Thomas was with them, all the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Because if you saw a resurrected dead person, that's exactly what you would want to hear from them. Because it would scare you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. And then what did Thomas do? He believed. And then what, what he said is, you believe because you've seen. But then he says this at the end of it. He says, Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen. But what else does Jesus say? It says, blessed are those who have not seen and believed. You know what the word blessed means? It means faith. Highly favored. And he's reminding the Christians in this church that though they don't see him now, and they still love him, and though they've never really uh, been with him, they still pour out their affections. And I want to make it clear that I think he's pointing out that they are blessed because they have put their faith in someone that they haven't seen, and they've 
poured out their affection in someone they have not listened to or seen before. And I think what's happening here is like when you put your faith in Jesus in that way, you are filled with the joy that your circumstances cannot mess with. Listen to what it says next. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You are being filled right now. Let me, let me, let me point this out to you right now. You are being filled right now, present tense, with joy that you cannot su suppress, you cannot express, you cannot contain, and that is not constraining. You can experience joy in that moment, something that's invincible, something that's inexpressible, because you've chosen to believe in someone that you haven't seen. Well, how are you getting that kind of joy? Well, it goes on to say, because you're experiencing the point of your faith. Listen to what it says next. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy with an expressible joy, because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith. What is the outcome of your faith? The goal or result of your faith. What is it? Someone shout it out. The salvation of your souls. Right now you are receiving present tense Something that is the pointing of your faith. You are receiving your salvation right now. Now I have to be, I have to back up and I have to talk about this because I really think that we can get lost on this. Because um, when we typically think of salvation, what we think of is this: is we think that it only means that we we will go to heaven when we die. It does mean that, but it's a the, the, there's a bigger uh, thing going on there, right? Salvation simply just means this. It's deliverance from ruin, deliverance from danger, deliverance from whatever it is something that is destroying you. It's not just something that happened in the past. It's something that you get to experience in the future when Jesus comes back. And according to the text, something that you are experiencing right now in the moment. And if you look at the text, you'll see, I don't know if I put this down here. Uh, no, I didn't. But if you actually look, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. But, uh, but if you look at verse 1, everyone go back to verse 1 for them, okay? I want you to check it out. It starts out with a blessing. And the blessing goes, blessed be God. Uh, yeah, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, past tense, okay? That you were saved because of what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago, okay? Now, go read further forward, read further more. It says this, you're being born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiable, and unfavorable, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to come. Right? So do you see that? Are you, are you, are you tracking me through here? 
So the salvation, so you were saved in eternity past when Jesus died on the cross. Then it's saying your salvation is going to come in the future when Jesus comes back and rises from the dead and makes everything right and there's no more sin in the world. But then if you go to the verse that we're looking through today, it says, though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you're obtaining present tense the outcome of your faith, salvation of your soul. So you see that? So you see that salvation is something that you got when Jesus died on the cross. It's something that you will receive in the future when Jesus comes back and makes everything all right. But it's something you're experiencing right now. Salvation is... Uh, did, I, did I just confuse everybody here? Okay. I'm just... I'm just you guys don't... I have to ask people what they think after the service. But here, here's, here's uh, I hope you get it, right? And I want to be very careful to explain salvation. Salvation is 100% a work of God. He has done all the work and it's by grace. What's grace? Grace is favor that you get without merit. We're not the heroes in our own story. Jesus came to be the hero in your story. And there's nothing we can do uh, to earn our salvation. The only thing that we can do is receive it. And that is called faith. Faith is being certain of what you don't see. And salvation is not a work that we do, but a person that we trust. A person that we do not see, though we love. And he's saying, though, that because we love him and put our faith in someone that we don't see, I think we are blessed. Okay. So that's observation number one. Observation number two is I'm going to say that you are a privileged believer. Or another way I'm going to word that is we live in an era other believers envy. Do you believe that? I don't know if we do, because uh, for two reasons. When I think about uh, all the Christians that have ever lived and all the Bible stories, uh, I think about a guy like Moses. And Moses, he had these real tangible encounters with God, where he saw God face to face. And I read those stories, and I read stories like David and Goliath, or Jacob, or you know how God moved and had these really personal encounters with God. And I, I, I envy that, don't you? There's like an experience God like that. Okay. Did it ever occur to you that maybe Moses is the one that's envying your place right now? Listen to what the text says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was given to your search and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ would uh, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. And so what is going on here is that, is that who were the prophets? The prophets, if you know your Old Testament, were some of the most important men that lived in the earth up to that point. And they had one job. They were to hear from God and tell the people. Moses was a good example of that. 
he was a prophet, and was said in Moses that he had a face-to-face -face encounter with God. And do you know that what this text is saying is here is that uh, the matter is, is that Moses himself looked into the matters regarding salvation and looked for the times and the places at which it happened. They were looking for Jesus. Where's Jesus? There's this salvation. So as the prophets, they're talking about, uh, they're predicting the coming of Jesus. So like, this is great. This is amazing. i got to find out when and where and how and all this kind of thing. And they, and they, they wanted to see what you see. They wanted to be in an era where Jesus was revealed. Okay? So much so that they sought after all that time, and it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but they were serving you. Okay? They were trying to find the details of the Messiah for you. They were to the ends of the earth to look for the details on when is he coming and when is he not. How do I know that this is the real Messiah? They understood that this was the greatest work of their lives, speaking about how you could be saved and writing about salvation. They understood that they would be actually serving us in extensive ways. And it's not just the prophets or the Old Testament believers that yearn to be where you are. It's actually the angels too, right? Even angels longed after these things. Look what it says in the text. Things, these are things into which the angels long to all look. And I would just wonder if you want to stop and think about that for a moment. Because I often ponder and think a lot about angels. As we ponder and wonder about angels, do you know what angels ponder over? The very thing that you and I get to live in today. The angels want to be a part of it so much, but they just couldn't. And the reason I bring this up is I don't think we quite get it as Christians. I don't think that you and I understand just how privileged we are among everyone in human history. For thousands of years, people have been looking for Jesus and wondered about these things and wondered how they would happen. And you and I live on the other side of the most monumental event in human history. And we get it. And sometimes I don't think that we understand that we are a privileged people. Are we a privileged people? Yep. Thank you. So through all this, those are the two observations that I make, that we are a favored people and that we are a privileged people. And so with that, I just want to ask the question, what is, what is it Peter is trying to help us to see? And I want you to understand that I think what Peter is helping us to understand is just how utterly important your salvation is. Peter is going to help us drill down to one true value and get us back to the hard, word, real worth of what is really valuable and get us back in touch with what is worth living and dying for. And sadly, I think it's something that far too many of us have taken for granted. Just how utterly important your salvation is. I want you to track with me all the way back to verse 1. And I want you to go from 1 all the way down to verse 12. I want you to realize that everything he's talking about is about how important and how good and how awesome salvation is. He's talking about the fact that you're born again. 
He's talking about the fact that that born-againness gives you an inheritance that either fades or goes away, that there's salvation for you yet to come. He's talking about salvation now, that you love Him even though you don't tr- you've never seen Him, and that other Christians who lived a long time ago long to see what you see. I think what he's trying to get at, he opens up his letter by this, by reminding us exactly how important it is to be safe. How important is it? It's important enough that all apostles die for it. Church tradition tells us that all the apostles, except for one, were martyred for their faith. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword wound. Mark died in Alexandria in Egypt after being dragged by horses through streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece as a result of his tremendous preaching to the lost. John faced martyrdom when he was boiled by a huge basin of boiling oil during a wave of persecution that hit Rome. The wave that we're just kind of, First Peter is just kind of entering into. However, he was miraculously delivered from death. John was sentenced to the mines on the, on the prison island of Patmos. Uh, he wrote the book of Revelation on Patmos, we get that. Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross three years after writing the letter that we were just reading. In Rome, remember I told you about the big fire? That fire was the catalyst for, for Nero to do what he did with Peter. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown over a hundred feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny his faith in Jesus. When they discovered the fall, his enemies, that he survived the fall, his enemies beat James to death with a furler's club. James the Great, son of Zebedee, was a fisherman by trade when Jesus called him to a lifetime of ministry. A strong leader of the church, James was ultimately beheaded at Jerusalem. Bartholomew was a missionary to Asia. He witnessed for a Lord in a present-day Turkey. Bartholomew was martyred for his preaching when he was flayed to death by a whip. Andrew was crucified on an ex-sheep cross in Greece. Thomas, the guy that just doubted, right, that we all, we all go, oh, Thomas is a bad guy because he doubted, was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionary trips to establish the church in the southern continent. Jude was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith with Jesus. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace the traitor Judas, scared was stoned and then beheaded. Paul was tortured and then beheaded by the evil emperor Nero in AD 67. Paul endured a lengthy imprisonment which allowed him to write many of the epistles. Later he died in Rome, which is where this letter was written. The point I'm bringing out, I want you to understand, is the point of the text I, I really want to make clear is I don't think there is nothing that you have or that you possess that is more important or of more worth or of more value than your salvation. There's nothing more important than Jesus. And that's what he starts out his letter talking about. All the greatness of being saved. And so here's what I'm going to tell you. I think that in order to have joy, 
in times where you have a, you're experiencing the worst. You can experience joy in the worst moments when you sell, value salvation as the most important thing you have. Write that down, right? If you're writing something down. I believe that you can have a salvation or a joy in the worst moments in your life when you believe that Jesus is the most important thing that you own. Why? Because here's, 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 here's the truth about joy. When you put your joy in something that is bound to change, it will change, and so will your joy. So if you put your hope and joy in something that is temporal, like a relationship or your health, or your financial well-being, or the fact that life is going pretty good, chances are it's going to be like the weather, and it's going to change, and you're going to run this roller coaster up and down about whether or not you have joy or sorrow and all this kind of thing. But if you put your hope and joy in the most important thing, your relationship with Jesus, that never changes. Okay? And because it never changes, you can have this hope where you can lose everything. You can lose your life, you can lose your health, you can lose your respect, you can lose your family, but because you have Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the most important thing to you, you can have joy in the midst of it. Now, just to give you a little bit of an illustration about this, uh, years ago, I, I had lost my work, and uh, I lost my employment, and I think, guys, you know how you feel when you lose a job, right? It's not just that you lost a job. There's a sense of self-worth that you lose in your job, too. And I think guys not at that? Yeah. I mean, you're willing to admit? Yeah. Because on one hand, you see, it's not just that you lost your income. You, you're told that maybe you're not good enough, right? You have to go home and tell your wife that you failed to provide, right? You've got to go to another job interview, and they're going to ask the question, why did you get fired? And I'm going to go, well, why did, you, why did the other guy get no. <laughs> fired? No, I mean, but my point is, it's, it's, a very, it's very tied to more than just an income. And for me, when I lost work, it, it, I, my whole life was tied to my work. It was my social life was tied to my work. My friends were tied to my work. My my feeling of worth was tied to my work. This pressure that I need to provide was tied to my work. The fact that I was—it sounds really weird, but I think every guy, you know, the, the fact that I was a man was tied to my work. And I remember that day, I remember I, I picked up Liz from her work and I drove home and I told her I, I lost my job and we don't have any friends anymore. <laughs> we don't have anything, it's just, I lost everything, man. And she, she turned to me and said, you haven't lost your family. We're still here. James and I still love you. You're in, we're in the corner. And in that moment, I realized that I could lose everything, but if I had my family, that was enough, right? That, that, was, that was good. And in that moment, I could, I could have this sense of joy. I could laugh because I knew that my family was moving with me. It's the same sort of idea with Jesus, okay? You know, you're tracking with me here? You could lose everything. You could lose, you could lose your family. You could lose your health. You could lose your respect. You could lose everything. But the fact that you hold on to Jesus, man, 
that relationship with Jesus that He loves you and that He died for you, if you hold on to that with this fierce kind of I'm not letting go, then you can have joy in the worst of circumstances. As, I don't know if you thought about this, but it, joy depends solely on what you value the most. And if you value Jesus as the highest treasure, your salvation is the most important thing, then I guarantee you that you can still find joy in those moments where it doesn't feel appropriate to have joy. If you set your joy on something that it can change, it is bound to change. It will be like the weather, but if you put it on Jesus, I think that you will have a faith that is worth surviving. And yet, here's the truth. If I can be honest, can I be, can I, can I head home just a little bit? Can I, can I be a little bit offensive for a moment? I think the longer we believe, the easier it is to take our salvation for granted. Is there any truth to that? Yeah. How do we often treat our salvation? How do we think about it? How do we talk about it? How do we treat it? Do we treat it like it's the most valuable thing we own? Do we nurture it? Do we protect it? Do we respect it? I think a lot of Christians, it's easy for us, including myself, to take the gospel for granted. And Jesus' greatest work becomes white noise. Something outwardly we praise, but inwardly we, quite frankly, are bored with. We would never admit that because we're Christians and you know, we, want to, we want to make sure that we provide the right way. But inwardly, I think maybe we get bored with the salvation. And when I, when I don't know about you, but when I value something more than Jesus and I get sidetracked, I start to look at other things for my joy, and then my joy quickly disappears. And I really think that sometimes we've missed the significance of our salvation a little bit. We've forgotten that we are the most favored people and the most blessed, or privileged people in the universe. We get to live in a season of history where God's work has been done, and we get to preach that message and see the resurrection of Jesus in our lives. We don't have to wonder about when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. Why do we struggle to value our salvation at times? I suppose it can be because we cannot see Him. We cannot touch Him. And at times we lose our touch with Him. I think it's really important for us to understand that when we're going through pressures, that the most valuable thing that you have is Jesus. And here's why. This is where it's going to get practical, okay? Next week we're going to look at this verse. And in this verse, right after the verses we just read, it says, it is obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know what he's saying there? He's going to say, hey, because you love Jesus, don't go back to your former way of life. 
Here's what I'm going to tell you. When you and I don't value our salvation as the thing that we treasure most, Jesus, then that temptation becomes real, real, really, real, real fast. Amen? I, I don't know how, if you thought about this or not, but when, when, I, when you get to that text, I think it's a call to say, hey, don't walk away from Jesus, don't deny your faith. But I also think, too, that there are things, I, I call them Tylenol things. Do you know what I mean by this? Is that Tylenol is something that you take when you feel like, when you feel the pain of something you don't want to feel anymore. The thing about Tylenol is it doesn't actually get rid of what's causing the problem necessarily. It's just kind of numbing the pain. And I think that our former passions, when, when we're under pressure, there are former pressures, passions that we have, that work like that. Things that, sins that we're tempted to indulge in because they release, that they take the edge off the stress. And I think Peter's not only saying, hey, don't walk away from your faith. Don't go back to those things. Okay. I don't know, I, I started listing, and I don't know, maybe to help you have an idea of what I'm talking about, I listed a bunch of ways that I return to those former passions when I'm under stress. Maybe you can relate to this. When I'm under stress, and uh, I, especially when I have to be patient, I result to impulsiveness. How many of you, when you're feeling tried or, true, or you're going under a time of trial or stress, you, you're impulsive, right? And maybe you pull out that phone or, that, or you dial that number or you send that text message that you really shouldn't have, but then you later regret for it. You're just like, ah, oh, I'm gonna, I'm, you're just such a meanie and you don't love Jesus and send. And you're like, oh, man, I shouldn't have sent that. I've done that. Or you procrastinate, right? Maybe the suffering it, you, forces you to go through an action that you need to take, and you're constantly putting it off. Maybe you minimize, maybe you avoid confrontation, maybe you withdraw and hide. You know, you go to your bedroom, you put your earphones on, you just scroll on your phone for hours on end and just kind of lock yourself there, and you shut yourself out to the world, right? That happens all the time. Or you turn back to a habitual sin, Maybe it's a food addiction, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's something on the internet that should be looked at. Any of that kind of stuff, right? You're going to it, and, and, and you know that you shouldn't, but you go to it anyway. Why are you going to it? Because in that moment, you are turning to those former passions because you think they will give you a relief in a way that your salvation can't or isn't. Did you understand what I'm saying with that? When you sin in the midst of a trial, why are you doing it? Because there's something about that sin that's giving you a relief that you actually aren't finding in Jesus, or you don't think that Jesus will provide. And I believe that's exactly why Peter starts out his letter talking about how your salvation, about how Jesus is the most valuable thing that you will ever own. Or, oh, you get what I mean, right? Because if it's not, then you're going to turn to something else that is. Something that can destroy you. Something where there's no joy. Can I tell you something? 
the darkness, evil does not have any answers. It's only in Jesus Christ that you have answers. Amen. Okay? So, do you understand why I'm kind of telling you how to think about your suffering before I tell you how to act and do it? Because what, how you think about your suffering it does affect the choices it makes. Is salvation the most important thing that you own today? I would spend some time just talking to God about that. Seeing that God, are there any former passions that I'm turning to to find relief that I should be finding relief in? You can find joy in the worst circumstance if you value Jesus above all else. Let's close with a little more stuff. <coughs>